Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this live edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We've got a very important show uh, for you today. Justin Perkins is with us today. He is Senior Director of Brand Engagement at CARE2. As the announcer said, Uh, We are a live call-in show today, so you can call in and ask questions of our page two expert at 347-324-3080, and uh, you can also reach us over in the chat room, and you can email me today uh, with your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. So thank you so much for joining us today. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. And over here on page one news, uh, we are coming to you from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Steve and Jean Case, tell impact investments instead of giving money away. Uh, in an article over at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. We'd like to ask you to uh, read all about that. Um, Also, here on page one news, we want to share with you uh, information from Google Keep. Life, it's busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. 
So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. We are now here on uh, page one, and we've got so much to cover today uh, because our topic today is about those social media websites, how you can succeed online. Uh, so we're going to move right on over to page two. Over here on page two, our expert today is Justin Perkins, MBA. He is Senior Director of Brand Engagement at Care2Cup.com. Justin has worked with over 500 brand engagement campaigns and high-impact partnerships focused on annual, animal rights, human rights, environmental sustainability, and healthy living products. Justin helps nonprofits and impact-oriented brands build large and passionate tribes of advocates. And let's hang on to that passionate tribes of advocates, donors, and fans. Uh, Justin is also founder and president of, you're going to have to help me out with this, Justin, when you come online, uh, O-L-O-M-O-M-O Nut Company, a fast-growing national healthy uh, nut snack uh, brand uh, picked as one of the top 10 brands to watch in 2014. Very smart guy. Both uh, Care2 uh, and the Nut Company uh, are certified B Corps, companies that are values-driven uh, towards positive social environmental impact. And welcome here to the nonprofit coach. Uh, welcome uh, here, Justin Perkins. Thank you very much for having me on, Ted. Appreciate it. And it's pronounced Olo Momo. Olo Momo. Okay, I'm sure everybody else gets that right except for me. But uh, when I ran across that, I was like, I'm not quite sure what to uh, uh, to do with that. So we've got a big topic today, uh, Justin. Why don't you uh, start off? Uh, by introducing my audience to Care2. Sure, you bet. Thanks. So um, I've had a chance to work with Care2 for almost 10 years, and little-known fact is that Care2 was actually one of the first social networks ever launched back in 1998. And in that period, we've grown to be really the largest force for good on the Internet in a million people that are um, basically participating with Care2 because they care about causes. And those causes range from the environment to human rights to pretty much every progressive issue under the sun. And one of the unique things about Care2 is that we're very much a values-based organization. And I think like kind of attracts like, so we've been able to organically grow at a rate of 10 to 20,000 people every day um, and attracting individuals who care about causes they shop um, and vote with their dollars around brands and nonprofits they care about. And as a result of that, we've um, been able to help many nonprofits, over 1,500, recruit tens of thousands of people um, to join their communities in a very high-touch, um, deep, deeply engaging way, through often through petitions and pledges and getting people to really raise their hand in public and say, this is a cause I care about, this is a badge I, I would wear, and and then introducing those individuals to 
both nonprofits as well as brands where they can go deeper down the rabbit hole, so to speak, with that particular cause. So it's turned into this very effective uh, engine for good. And, and on the back end of that, we're, we've developed some pretty savvy uh, behavioral targeting tactics to help organizations really find people that are most likely to be interested in what they're working on. And Justin, when was CARE uh, founded? It was founded in 1998 uh, by a fellow named Randy Painter, who was really, really early in uh, in thinking about how to leverage the internet for good. And uh, Care Two was quite literally the first uh, social network that was focused on causes. And um, we've tried many different business models um, over the years, but have really uh, pioneered this this concept of community building for nonprofits in a way that's um, quite effective and uh, pairs well with social media and a lot of the other more um, a lot of the other newer digital channels, but uh, really focused around helping organizations grow their email lists. Now, this is uh, quite a unique uh, uh, brand opportunity that you brought to the marketplace when that that got started, um, and really helped a lot of organizations build their email lists early on when no one really had an opportunity to do that. How were you able to bring together such a large community of people that were willing to, I guess it's fair to say, share their loyalty? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, nowadays we call it content marketing, um, but from an early, early point we figured out that we would create not only tools but content that would um, en enable people to learn more about the causes they care about and not only learn more about them but actually take action and engage to do something, to make a difference. And I think that is the real hook. So whether it was um, the petitions that we launched or some of the social networking tools, that was really part of the key uh, in, into how we attracted so many people and what really inspired people to share the causes they were taking action on. Um, today you'll see that something like 5 to 20% of the people who signed petitions on CARE2 are also sharing those on social media. So, for example, if um, one of our petitions get about gets about 10,000 signatures, um, and often they get quite a bit more than that, 50 to 100,000, um, you'll see something like uh, 1,000 to uh, 2,000 or even more people sharing that on social media as well. So it's really become an integrated platform that ties together um, this this common uh, this common force for good that connects millions of people towards making small changes that add up towards good. So I think people are really connected with this community that is focused on their values, and there have been some amazing stories that have come out of that, um, both on the individual but also on the collective level. Um, so, but you were way out ahead in building that initial community. I mean, before you could share that or have uh, the marketing uh, help nonprofits and others uh, build off in your platform, you had to first have the loyalty to care too. How were you able to do that? Yes, I think part of that is just in the transparency that we thought that we have always shown in saying that this this community is grounded in progressive values and we are going to stay on the good side. And so that, that's been really key, I think, in attracting loyal members um, where we haven't waffled on that mission uh, since day one, really. So the initial concept was really to 
use the available technologies to engage people where they were, meet them where they were at, and provide them with meaning. Um, and I think if you look at the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, for example, um, I think what really the secret for CARE2 is that we're meeting the need to connect, we're meeting the need to have voice, um, and the need to be part of a group of people that shares values. So really, it really boils down to meaning, and I think that's a service that we've been able to provide at scale. Um, and as a result of that, we see something like 47% of our members come back every single day. It's pretty crazy. That that really is outstanding to have that kind of uh, uh, loyalty to the Care2 brand, um, and particularly to have it get uh, spanned so many years to say, no, it wasn't uh, it wasn't just a flash in the pan, uh, but one that was uh, sustained over time. And I'm guessing that as we move towards your five tips for uh, media success, can you share with us what are some of the things that Care2 has done to keep that community as vibrant and alive as it is? So I think it's it's a combination of. Um, meeting people where they are in terms of what I just mentioned, of, of providing content that um, helps people feel good uh, about what about what they're doing. So we're providing a great a great story. Is I, I ran into a a woman. She was about 29 years old. She actually had a degree in advertising. She was from Spain, and she'd started a little in-home daycare um, that provided childcare for little kids. So we took our daughter there when she was about one years old, and. Um, when this woman found out that I worked for Care2, she totally lit up. And um, what happened was that she would use Care2 every day for 10 minutes to really connect with the world. That was her outlet to the world while she spent the rest of her working hours uh, take, taking care of other kids, other, other people's kids. Um, and for her, that was really important. I think it, it gave her a chance to connect with what was happening and make a difference, even if it was in a small way, um, towards the collective good. So I think that's a really key key factor. Um, the other piece is, I think, being able to connect with other people who share their values. Um, another story was uh, a man in, in Boulder, Colorado, where I live. Uh, he was an environmental activist back in the early 90s, and he was you know, pretty fresh out of college and felt pretty alone. He realized that there weren't a lot of people that necessarily um, shared his values. He felt like he was a bit out, out in front of what should be happening with business and the environment. Um, and Care2 really became a support network for him, and he, he kind of found his tribe, so to speak, of other people that that really shared his values and supported him. And um, this guy's name is Quail Hodak. He went on to start Renewable Choice Energy, which now offsets uh, the carbon for many major corporations that – all told, takes about the equivalent of 100,000 cars off the road every year. So I think we've really tapped into something um, that's pretty primal in a sense where um, our, our, our world is hungry for good and it's hungry for an opportunity to be part of the solution. And we've, we've provided sort of the, the gateway to, to starting that. So a lot of people are, are, are feeling good about taking action and that leads to much deeper things down the road. Well, it certainly has been a success story and one that uh, I think many have tried to emulate uh, over time. Uh, you have millions of people who, as you said, sort of count on you um, every day to connect them to causes that they care about. Let's, um, let's pivot on to um, the topic of the day today. And, again, I want to 
thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Uh, our topic, as, uh, as is mentioned in the, uh, the posting, is five guidelines uh, to help you be successful in social media. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to maybe focus that on, you know, year-end, but also preparing for, for the new year. Um, so for our listeners, um, where do we start? What's tip number one? Sure. So I think um, when we're talking about fundraising in particular, um, and and really a lot of a lot of what I'll say around that applies to digital marketing in general, and ultimately channel marketing. Um, but I've had the, the the opportunity and and the 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 luck to watch a lot of a lot of trends that have come and gone over the last decade, um, having been. Um, in in the sandbox that is care too, if you will, and um, I think one of the probably my first step tip would be to really focus on your email strategy. If you're trying to play the digital game and you haven't maximized that, and you're splitting your efforts with other channels, um, really email is going to provide your biggest result. And a couple of reasons why that is, if you think about the user experience, which I'll emphasize over and over, you got to stand in the shoes of the people that you're, that you're reaching out to and trying to, to uh, bring into your community. Um, most of us that are professionals, and most professionals are the ones that donate because they have disposable income, um, we're stuck in the inbox all day. So email is really sort of the direct, the direct line, the direct artery that enables us as marketers to reach our, our key constituency, our key, our key targets, our key potential donors. So um, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, and certainly, other channels are important. But I'm a big proponent of data and taking a data-centered uh, view into your strategy, and a big proponent of looking at apples to apples comparisons and return on investment. And that that really becomes our key metric for comparing across channels. Um, and in other words, if you're spending money on a channel that's less effective and has less uh, replicable or scalable return on investment, um, then you should probably cut back on that channel and focus on uh, other channels that are more scalable and have higher ROI, assuming that you haven't maxed those out yet. And there certainly are some organizations that get to the bounds of um, their email strategy and, and start to see diminishing returns, but that's really... That's that's really actually more rare. Most organizations that I work with, most nonprofits, have a long way to go with maximizing their email strategy, and they frankly have been burned over the last five years with the gold rush for for channels like Facebook. Um, so I'd really emphasize as tip number one: maximize your email strategy, um, and that becomes a much more efficient spearhead of your your overall strategy, not only for reaching other uh, other channels like social media. Um, for example, you can leverage your email list using tools like Attentively, and that's attentive.ly, which uh, enables you to upload your email list and then get some insight into who on your email list and who in your community that already has written their, who's already raised their hand and said they like you um, is also influential on social media and potentially very connected. Um, so this this platform attentively gives you insight into um, which platforms one of your email subscribers is, might be on, as well as CloudScore, which shows uh, the level of influence that individual might have through social media. So that becomes a really efficient way to 
um, leverage your email email list to start to to uh, have some traction in social media without spending a lot of money on advertising um, on Facebook. Um, and part of the challenge now is that a number of companies and organizations have spent, in some cases, millions of dollars to grow a Facebook fan base. Uh, sorry, Facebook fan base. The problem is they changed their algorithms, so now you basically have to perpetually rent your community. Uh, to to have any sort of access or reach to that community that you may have spent, um, in some cases, years and millions of dollars building. So we're right. getting back. So to, let, let's, we're getting, let's wind this yeah. back. Especially, yeah. I just want to wind this back a little bit because we're we're moving into Facebook, and I want to sort of start you know, where you started because for a lot of people, that's a little bit of sort of heresy in 2014 to suggest that email is still king and your email strategy has to be perfected before you really seriously can be successful in uh, uh, in social media. Is that your message on sort of point one? Yeah, that's pretty close. I, I would say that in terms of ordering your strategy and priorities, if you have not maximized your email strategy and you're already um, – spending your efforts on social media, it's almost the reverse order. And this is something that I've been talking about for the last seven years, really. We developed a, a calculator that would help organizations predict um, their success in social media. And I hate to say it, but it was pretty accurate in terms of um, looking at the likelihood of raising any sort of significant dollars from social media. It's been very, very rare that organizations have done that. Um, now the focus tends to be on brand engagement through social media, which is great, but you can get all of that and actually direct response through email. So um, I'm not poo-pooing Facebook or social media. I think those are wonderful channels for the right purpose, which is more about brand engagement and awareness building and listening, giving you a chance to listen to what your community of supporters is talking about. But when it comes to fundraising, uh, the rubber hits the road with – driving traffic to your landing pages that can convert uh, fundraisers, funding, and, and donors. Um, so, we, so, really, so we start yeah. with email. We start with email, and you and I have been saying this, uh, I think, for more than seven years, um, that you really have to build that relationship, and it's how all of these tools interact with each other. It's not just one tool that's going to succeed for you. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. And the most sophisticated organizations have become adept at tying all of this together, and that's ultimately the holy grail. Um, and so that includes your messaging across all channels, including offline. Um, our most successful clients at Care2 tend to recruit people through a digital strategy with, with email at, uh, as, as a large component of that, um, of course, they're doing other things like driving traffic from Google um, and some other cost-per-click type approaches, but ultimately the, the ROI on the email uh, strategy tends to be the highest. And then, they're, and then they're focusing on having their brand everywhere and engaging people where they are. And I think that's, that's probably the, the best measured approach. But when you're, when you're looking at budgets and, and allocating dollars, you've got to be pretty ruthless in measuring ROI. And so that's why we tend to emphasize email because it tends to have the best ROI. Um, 
And so, um, so you know, a lot of that you, a lot of that circles around. Sorry, go ahead. Well, tell me tell me why you think that that is. I mean, again, this is 2014. Social media is everywhere. Um, and you know, for those who are not particularly adept at utilizing these tools, from their perspective, it might seem like that's where the real story is. So if it's not necessarily that's where the story is, why not? Why do you think sure. email still, still resonates with a lot of people? Yeah, so I, I would reiterate that with email, it's still the preferred channel of communication for most professionals. Most of our donors are 40-plus, and they're people that are still professional in the workplace or they're retired. Um, those those folks are not spending the majority of their day on Facebook um, unless they're prompted by an email, frankly. And so what happens is that the, the purpose of, of Facebook also is finding friends and finding your community. So I think trying to interject yourself as an organization in, in that stream is very challenging to do in an authentic and, and compelling way. Um, so I think the opportunity there is to inspire our constituents to do that for us. So I think that's the right strategy. Um, but again, it kind of comes back to ROI. We're not seeing great results in terms of fundraising from Facebook. So that's telling us that maybe we should emphasize on the channels. When we're thinking about fundraising, we should emphasize the channels that are proven to work over time. And if you look at you know the data over the last 10 years from the publicly available benchmark studies, it's still email that's driving a big chunk of the uh, the fundraising through through digital. Well, that that's not necessarily uh, what the folks over at Facebook want to hear or want people to necessarily uh, believe. So, as we're looking at the the five guidelines for success here at year end and preparing for the new year, um, number one is is email and perfecting and building your community via email. Is that guideline number one? Yes. Um, and a, and a direct corollary to that is is really about owning your own data. So as a general strategy, I've seen a lot of um, organizations get burned by either building their core products at the whims of somebody else's platform. Um, so, for example, um, YouTube used to have a the ability to count uh, video views through um, through third-party websites. So if you if you hosted a, 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 a YouTube video on your blog or your uh, or you put it on your nonprofit's website, you could collect those video view counts and have those added up to the total. So um, we 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 actually launched a product at one point to help organizations ramp up their their video views, and overnight Google changed the rules. They decided to change that algorithm. And guess what? That product went away. Um, likewise, no, uh, a huge number of organizations have invested a lot of time and money in building Facebook fan pages. And because of the algorithm changes that Facebook implemented a few months ago, um, now it's really difficult to access those fan bases. You don't really own that data. Facebook does. Um, and so you have to perpetually pay Facebook to um, to access the community that you already spent money to build. So, um I, I actually really love Facebook, and they're a great company in a lot of ways. But I think that, um, you yeah, know, that was clearly a money-making move, um, and not to the advantage of nonprofits who have um, tight budgets. 
Right. And so um, in doing that, um, that has lessened your advice in terms of where Facebook fits uh, in your overall guideline because that sort of uh, moves down a hierarchy. Is there another social media platform that you feel um, is perhaps um, uh, more nonprofit friendly? Um, I would say there's there are a lot of nuances to the social media strategies, and a lot of that depends on your brand, who you're trying to reach. Um, I think a lot, you know, for example, if you look at Twitter, that tends to be more of an influencer strategy. So if you're an organization that relies a lot on PR, then that might be a smart approach for trying to to reach, um, you know, influencers in your particular channel, be that be that uh, celebrities, be that influential journalists. Um, that can be a direct way to attract and influence people. Um, but in terms of, I, w- I would say in terms of community building, where you're looking at really growing a grassroots constituency, um, Facebook seems to be for, you know, for the demographic at least of nonprofits, that seems to be the most likely place to go because everybody's there. Um, but I think the challenge is then looking at, okay, is this the most effective way to drive people to our website? And if so, that's fine. That may make sense in some cases. Then what's the what's the content and what's the engagement strategy to get people to to our properties? So I think um, that kind of gets me from tip number two, which is own your data, <laughs> to tip number three, which is really to, to hone your storytelling. So regardless of channel, what we're really looking at here is how to how to tell a story that is going to really hook people and bring them in to the work that you're doing. And really the upshot of everything I'm going to say on that point is to flip the framework where uh, most organizations make the mistake of uh, telling the story as if the organization is the hero. So think about Star Wars, for example, um, you know, some pretty – pretty clear archetypes in that storyline. You have uh, figures like Yoda who are sort of the mentors and guides and, you know, the Luke Skywalker who's the hero. Well, most organizations get that backwards and put themselves as Luke Skywalker fighting crime or poverty or, um, you know, saving the world. And really the most effective nonprofits that I see and the most effective storytelling both in in brands and nonprofits is when the organization places themselves as the mentor or the guide. So they're, they're Yoda in the story and the individual person that you're messaging, the constituent, they're the hero. So how do you, how do you set up a storyline and how do you create the environment um, and the content that you create that really brings people in and makes them feel heroic? Isn't that the, uh, the part of the story behind the ALS challenge that, each individual who participated in that was a hero in and of themselves was able to tell the story, their own hero story. Um, and while you could go and look up what the the organization does, what they stand for, uh, learn more about the disease, uh, that was not necessarily front and center in terms of the organization being the hero. Yeah, I think that was a really important part of it is it put the power into the hands of of the people, and there was a built-in incentive on uh, uh, multiple levels. One is that you're having your friends challenge you uh, publicly. So by not doing it, you're kind of a chump. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, you know, people were reaching out on Facebook. And by the way, Facebook is, was the perfect channel for this because it, it did tap into that friend-to-friend sharing impulse. Um, and uh, the other piece was that it was just absolutely funny and, and fun to do. So, um, you know, you're, you're getting the peer pressure. That's really powerful. You have a chance to, to be a hero. That's really powerful. And then your natural incentive is to, to pass it along and, and uh, share the, uh, you know, share the smackdown, if you will. So um, I think, I, think uh, I, I know I had a lot of fun in, in thinking of um, friends who would really enjoy it and also um, friends that I thought would really care about the issue. So um, that, was, that was a brilliant campaign on many levels because it hit so many psychological points um, that, that human beings respond to. So, so um, I, I'm sorry to jump around a little bit, but I, I wanted to explore a little bit um, more about your point number two, um, and that's own your data, which I think for a lot of nonprofits, it, it certainly sounds like a, an easy enough concept, but for a lot of nonprofits, isn't that really difficult to uh, understand how to maybe not so much own it, but how to manage it and how to control it? Well, I, I, I use the words own your data pretty pretty explicitly because I think they're, you know, they're two of the preferred channels are uh, direct mail acquisition, which is decreasing as a viability. It's becoming harder and more expensive to acquire people through direct mail acquisition. Um, you know, if postal rates have increased. Um, that particular demographic is getting older and less responsive, um, et cetera. And, and in that scenario, you are effectively renting another organization's list. It's a one-shot deal. There's no opportunity to really um, develop a long-term relationship. And so uh, very very much saying own your data. And, yes, managing your data is a big part of it, but, but uh, I'm really talking about own, owning your data in this scenario. And then the other, the other example is Facebook. I've already mentioned that twice, but – um, there you're in a situation now where you don't own your data, even if you have a massive fan base, you're perpetually renting that, that access. So uh, a much longer-term scenario is to own your own list, essentially, um, regardless of how you build that. Um, so that's really what I'm talking about. The data management piece um, is probably much deeper, but there are a lot of technologies that, that make that much easier than it used to be. So, you know, looking at some of the the common um, CRM providers um, that, you know, most organizations playing this game are familiar with, be that engaging networks or Salsa or Convio or uh, the BlackBot suite. So, so understanding the broader issue of how all of your data points come together and how you're managing all the data points, not just email, not just um, access on Facebook or other social media sites. Yeah, absolutely. And just and just to reiterate, the advantage of owning your own data is that you kind of control your fate um, and you have a long-term asset. So just look at email, for example. <clears throat> the lifetime value of an email address that you own is on the order of $10 to a nonprofit. And that, that ranges from probably $5 on uh, in certain channels like environmental groups to to $20 for organizations that do a lot of emergency response in international development or disaster relief. Um, but there's a there's kind of a predictable lifetime value now to your list. Um, whereas if you're having to rent access, uh, it's a one-shot deal if you're renting a list uh, or if you're trying to rent access to Facebook. 
um, <clears throat> a little harder to predict, and you don't own that asset. You're potentially renting it. Um, so a longer-term approach is to own your own data. Now, when you own your own data, um, does that mean you sort of, quote-unquote, own your donors in a way that uh, uh, sort of older direct mail lists may have uh, viewed themselves as owning their donors, and, and therefore you can make money off from the renting of your, your own donor data? Is that, uh, is that still a workable scenario in 2014? Yeah, and I, I, I want to reiterate that, um, you know, there's, there's not necessarily one size fits all for the advice I'm giving. A lot of this is going to vary on issue, on channel. So um, as, as things trend towards direct mail acquisition, uh, dropping and most most direct marketers are aware of that and it's a challenge. The ROI and the payback is lower and the payback is uh, you know takes longer. So um, what we're really looking at here is <clears throat> being able to uh, create a scalable, predictable business model by owning your own list. You have a renewable resource that you can reach out to again and again and. Yes, you, if you own your own list, then you also have potential revenue from renting access to that direct mail list, for example, to other organizations as well. So um, that's sort of extra revenue that can be made. But I'm really more concerned here about the the business model around direct response. Um, so the the most effective strategy we're seeing with our most effective clients is acquire people, um, get their email address. That record then helps you find the um, <clears throat> it helps you find their data on social media. It helps you find their offline data, and gives you the power to do some pretty effective multi-channel outreach, and that that leads to much higher lifetime value. Um, for example, direct mail acquisition usually is about uh, a third to a fourth the value of multi-channel acquisition. But the challenge is, if you acquire somebody through direct mail, um, there's a good chance they're not going to donate in multi-channel. They're typically an older donor that may not be uh, engaged with the internet. So the reverse equation works much better where you bring people in online, you have the opportunity to cultivate a relationship over time um, through multiple channels, be that email or Facebook, et cetera. Um, and those people end up being worth about four times as much as somebody that's only reached out to in one channel. Um, to help us yeah. break that down a little bit more, I think what you just said is is very profound because you know, I think a lot of my listeners today, you know, uh, sort of get direct mail. I mean, that's easy. You either have a list or you rent a list. You put together a letter. It's either a good one or it's not. Um, and money comes in, and maybe they give online because you prompted them to, uh, or maybe they uh, they mail in uh, the envelope in the form that you provided to them. So that concept is, is you know, tried and true and, and decades old. Um, and what you're saying is, while that still has its utilization, uh, direct mail donors tend to be direct mail donors. They, they don't tend to then become multi-channel donors. Whereas, if I understand what you're saying, and I'd like you to break this down a little bit more for us, the payoff for the organization, both long-term and short-term for an organization, who smartly engages in multi-channel and help us understand what you mean by multi-channel, um, that the ROI there is much greater and potentially the affinity to the organization is deeper. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I, I can break it down in very clear. It's just very logical the way it works. Um, 
there was a study a couple of years ago that I think it was Target Analytics did, and they looked at the conversion rate of a, 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 an offline acquired donor, so somebody that was a direct mail donor, uh, and they looked at the conversion rate to them donating online. And at that point, it was about a 3% conversion. At the same time, they looked at the conversion from an online donor to giving their second gift online, and the conversion was more like 40%. Um, and so that's generally what we're seeing is that um, the organizations that are able to own their data cultivate a relationship over time. And when you own your data, you can do that. You can reach out more than once. You can send other content besides fundraising appeals. Um, you can engage people through advocacy. You can ask them to be social media ambassadors. You can ask them to show up to events. It's not a one-shot deal. And so you're engaging people through multiple contacts, whereas with uh, direct mail, it's sort of all or nothing. Um, now, that said, we're seeing really good results with organizations who cultivate that, cultivate that relationship online first, but then they also reach out in direct mail, or they also pick up the phone and they call people. And those conversion rates are actually quite high, and, a, and still a, a large chunk of their money comes from offline. Um, but the engagement really starts and goes deeper when you have that ability to talk to people online. Um, and it's just much more cost effective too. Um, you're not, uh, you're not just gambling with, um, the, you know, the direct mail package, much smarter to bring people in online and then, um, work with the, the, the direct mail agencies and the data houses to then, uh, come up with really smart multi-channel packages that will help convert donors offline as well. And when you are successful in getting somebody to donate in more than one channel, then um, you're showing a lot, <clears throat> a lot more propensity to give in the future. And those folks, uh, based on some of the studies I've seen, um, tend to be three to, to three to four times more valuable than either a single channel, well, either an email donor alone or a direct mail donor alone. So that multi-channel is sort of the, the holy grail that we're seeing. We are here live with Justin Perkins. Uh, he's sharing with us his tips and guidelines for success in digital media, uh, both here at year-end for nonprofit organizations and as we all prepare for the year ahead. Uh, Justin, we're going to take a, a quick break here when we come back. Uh, I'm going to ask you um, to uh, help us think through that year-end strategy, that beginning of, of the year strategy, understanding this multi-channel approach, which is going to be over time far more profitable for organizations, but, but even a decade uh, or more into serious utilization of these tools by nonprofits, uh, I think you would agree a lot of this still seems a, a bit like a mystery. Uh, for a lot of uh, organizations. So we want to try to take some of that mystery away with our expert today, Justin Perkins, and we'll be right back. I want to make a programming uh, note uh, for my listeners. Uh, next week here in the United States uh, is Veterans Day. That is uh, a national holiday, and therefore the nonprofit coach will not be live on November 11th. Uh, but please mark your calendars. We will, in fact, be live the next day, uh, Wednesday, November 12th. And it's a big show. It's a show that I know a lot of you look forward to every year. 
and that is Penelope Burke will be back with us. Uh, she is with Cygnus Donor Research. Uh, each year she brings important insights uh, into the minds of donors, uh, and I think that uh, what you will find is the data that Penelope has is going to dovetail very nicely uh, to the very specific uh, suggestions that Justin is making for you today. Uh, so if you take the uh, suggestions from today, marry that up with insight into uh, donors that we'll receive next week, that is going to be a one-two punch helping you prepare for year end and for a uh, big year ahead. The week after that, we are back on our regular uh, schedule. Uh, we'll be back on Tuesday, November 18th. Uh, and then uh, uh, after that, uh, we will be starting to wind down our year looking towards the holidays. I'm going to jump forward and just let you know that the final show uh, for this season of the Nonprofit Coach, the first last live show uh, for this season, uh, will take place on December 9th, Tuesday, December 9th. And, of course, the person who always wraps up our year here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, is the wonderful Kay Sprinkle Grace. Uh, she has been our holiday final show of the year, of the calendar year, uh, every year since we started this show. And it is always one of the most popular shows here on the Nonprofit Coach. We're going to head back over to uh, Justin Perkins and the five guidelines that are going to help you succeed here at year-end and early 2015. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are back here live on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we are live with Justin Perkins from Care2. Uh, Justin, so, so help us now start bringing all of this together. We've got a 12 minutes here on the show. I want to make sure that we cover all five guidelines and that we sort of wrap all this up. And then I also want to make sure that all my listeners know how to reach you. Great. Um, so I think we're on guideline number three. And uh, we talked about owning your own data. And so as we think about year end, um, one thing that we can actually do with what, you know, the time we have left, the short time we have left at, at the end of the year is really focus on our storytelling. And a couple of these tips, I think, will help change your mindset in terms of how you're reaching out to people. So I'd already mentioned about putting your constituents at the center of the story, and that's a really important place to start. Uh, but to do that, it's really helpful to know who they are. So um, one thing that we've done at Care2, for example, and a lot of brands do this, is they come up with personas. And this is a pretty easy exercise to do in, in kind of a, a quick way, but, uh, you know, without spending a lot of money to do a full-on study. Um, I, would, I would guess that most nonprofit marketers have a good sense of who their audiences are. And um, I could probably generalize and say that they tend to be average age 40, they tend to skew female. This is for most issues. Um, they tend to be more well-off than the average American. Uh, they tend to be, uh, you know, high household income and relatively well-educated and, and savvy with the issues. Um, so one thing we've done at Care2 is actually come up with some 
fake images that are representative of of that archetype. Um, and we actually have three archetypes. One is more of a, a 25-year-old female. Uh, the other is a, a, a mid mid 30s to early 40s female uh, that might may or may not be a mother. Um, and then an older female that's probably uh, 60 years old. So uh, we actually have some images that we look at that are sort of representative of those archetypes. And it's really helpful as a marketer when you keep those images in line uh, in mind while you're writing messages. And a trick that I use is actually to think about writing uh, an email message or a fundraising appeal to an individual person as if I were talking to them. Uh, I think what's challenging and what most organizations do is they tend to write to, as if they're writing to a list. And uh, the challenge is that really dumbs down your message in some senses. It, it often is too generic and too general. And it comes across as uh, not as warm as it could be. Um, so that's another tip that I would highly recommend. Just that little exercise can probably help you gain a couple of uh, couple of points in terms of your conversion rates. Um, and then um, another key part of that, another key tip, is to really focus in on your conversion pages. So I'm kind of making some assumptions here that we're talking for the most part about digital marketing. And where the rubber really hits the road is when people actually come to your landing page, come to your, your website, and they hit that form and they have a chance to donate. And that's where most of the drop-off happens. Once you've gotten them hooked and you know they're interested, they actually click through and they get to the landing page, that's where you really need to convince people that it's worth following through and, and filling out your form. So a couple of quick tips on that front. Um, collect as little information as you can get away with. Every single extra box you add on that form is a reason to bail. So keep that website form as optimized as possible. Um, make sure that it's above the fold on the landing page. Um, if you can, have that landing page be the only thing that they can focus on. Um, the only other options they might have is to learn more or actually call you. So have a, a phone number readily available with somebody that is able to talk them through any technical challenges or answer any other questions. And if you can, get rid of all the other uh, website headers that are normally on your website. So you really want to just optimize that that final step so there are zero other distractions, including videos. Um, if you want to include imagery, which I'd recommend, make sure you have an image that's very compelling and ties in to the rest of the campaign so that the storyline is consistent. Um, those couple of tips, I think, will help. Um, it's amazing that a lot of organizations um, don't spend enough time optimizing their landing pages. And there, there are a ton of resources um, available on how to do that with uh, some pretty, pretty quick searching. Um, one one resource I'd recommend is uh, a, a report that the the Sea Change folks put together, um, and is a very much an evergreen resource. It's called the uh, the uh, Procrastinator's Guide to Year End Fundraising, uh, and this has some more detailed tips in terms of uh, of landing page optimization as well. But um, you know, thinking through some of those key points, and also looking at your past data to say okay, where are our drop-off points historically? So when it comes to looking at your emails, for example, you can look at 
your open rates versus your click to open rates. And if you see that your click to open rates are low, that means your subject lines might be good if your open rates are high. Um, but people are losing uh, interest in the messaging, so they're not necessarily clicking through. Um, so there are some, some tips like that that can really help to optimize your program. So those are just a couple technical things. Um, so really it's about keeping it simple, keeping it focused, knowing who your audience are, uh, and are you suggesting that the, the greater success is going to be working the audience that you've, you've worked so hard to already earn, uh, or is it the massive millions of people who are out there on social media who have never heard of you? Yeah, at this point in the game, um, short of reaching a platform that's already activated, so you know we have we've already done a lot of activation in our community. That's one of the benefits that Care Two has is we can pretty quickly onboard people um, into a nonprofit and and shortcut a lot of the effort. But short of a platform like that or tapping into an active community, um, at this point in the game, this point of the year it's pretty tough to bring in massive amounts of new people. So, um, you know, generally speaking, and, and, and there are exceptions, if, you're, if your organization has a lot of budget to spend, then sure, you know, you want to be fishing everywhere. But if you don't, then um, it's probably, at this point, it's, it's, it's probably best and most effective to focus on what you already have and really trying to um, make a lot of effort to, you know, even find those major donors that are hiding within your list and trying to find some creative ways to flesh those people out. Um, there was a great report that the Sea Change Strategies folks put out on the the hidden middle donors, um, and I think there's a lot of missed opportunity for mining the lists <clears throat> that we already have. Um, I suggested looking at attentively as one example, but also even LinkedIn. Look at um, who on your community has LinkedIn profiles, and you might find some high net worth individuals. So it's really about, I think, at this point in the year, honing in on on what you have, short of uh, short of you having big budgets to spend, um, and and really focus on um, a well thought out storytelling strategy that tells specific stories that are representative of your greater mission, puts the constituent at the center of that story with the opportunity to be a hero. And then, um, you know, don't be shy to use your email list and your your list and be pretty aggressive. Um, even uh, even on the last day of the year, a lot of folks actually hold off until the last day of the year. So it's really important to think about um, setting up email series that have a story arc, if possible. So, it's um, you know, you, you are – sometimes it takes three emails for somebody to donate. Uh, and don't be shy about hitting people up on, on New Year's Eve and, uh, and, and getting those last-minute dollars. There are a lot of them to be had. How much is too much, Justin, um, particularly here at year-end and you're putting your campaigns together? How much is too much? Um, totally varies on the quality of the emails that are sent. If you're sending me a really compelling email series that has an interesting hook, um, a cliffhanger that makes me want to open the next email, and provides value to my life, um, I'm probably going to stay engaged with that. Uh, a great example from outside of the nonprofit sector, there's a, um, a company called Good Belly that, that provides a probiotic drink. And they have a wonderful email series. When you sign up, they give you what they call the 12-day challenge. And so they've got a, 
basically an automated marketing onboarding series that sends you little tips about your health every day. And it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful engagement strategy that takes you deeper into the rabbit hole. So in that scenario, unless I really don't like the product, um, you know, I'm not going to unsubscribe because they're providing value to my life. So think about it in those terms. Um, the other side of that is just to watch your unsubscribe rates. And if you see them starting to spike, you might want to back off a bit. Most organizations have some benchmark in terms of what's normal for uh, for their past unsubscribes. So really that's the best guide. Um, but also look at benchmark studies that are readily available um, and um, M&R Strategic Services MRSS.com. They have uh, a great benchmark study that's pretty recent, and there are some past benchmark studies from other organizations you can find on frogloop.com slash benchmarks. Those have some, some good um, industry benchmarks for unsubscribe rates that will give you a sense of, um, of what you're doing. I think it's really important to understand that with this type of digital marketing, it is a numbers game. So um, you need to be thinking about ways to, and this, this kind of goes to your what to do in January question. Um, there's, a, there's a lot less activity in January, and that's a really good time to start focusing on growth um, once the dust settles from year-end fundraising. That's when it's really important, important to jump onto growth and start to bring people in deeper into your brand so that you're teed up better for the next time around. There's so many organizations I run into who, when the moment hits, when their big opportunity hits, whether that's Ebola or you know, the ice bucket challenge or the, um, the disaster in Haiti or a major celebrity who wants to get on board, they often don't have their list built. So um, it's really important to get ahead of that as soon as you can in January and start to really focus now, on now growth. Now is the time to plan. Justin, just uh, one minute left. Uh, how can my uh, uh, guests or my listeners uh, reach you? Sure. Um, so my email, is the best way, is Justin at care2team.com, that's C-A-R-E, the number two, team, T-E-A-M, dot com. And uh, my cell is 303-475-4827. We also have a wonderful res uh, resource called frogloop.com, F-R-O-G-L-O-O-P. And that's Justin Perkins. Uh, Justin, we've got to move on here. Sorry, we're almost out of time. Justin Perkins, fantastic show today, really preparing us for year-end. Senior Director of Brand Engagement at Care2. Please come back soon. Don't forget, next week, folks, we are live on Wednesday uh, with Cygnus Donor Research. Catch you next week. Bye. Thank you.